When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 1st of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government had some clear advice for parents of primary school going children yesterday. Where children are um, symptomatic, do not send them to school is the, is the most fundamental advice where they are symptomatic because one of the biggest issues for the last three months has been RSV. I keep on saying this in terms of children getting ill and children getting hospitalised. It's been RSV um, and um, other respiratory illnesses has been the dominant issue this winter uh, amongst children, which has proved challenging. It might sound obvious, but there's good reason for reminding people children who have symptoms should not be in school. Someone said earlier that the parents were sending their children with a spoon or two of Calpon. Uh, which is not the thing to do. CalPol won't tackle COVID and COVID is now most prevalent in the 5 to 11-year-old cohort. The, the target now is to get to the Christmas break, recalibrate, review how we deal with the next semester. The advice to government is from the public health officials. Who are saying that they believe children should reduce their socialisation. Why? Because they showed us graphs yesterday and they've published these graphs that the 5 to 11-year-old are going through the roof, literally speaking, in terms of numbers. And it's not just children. All of us are advised to reduce our social contacts. So they want to bring that down, just like we did the rest of the population. If you remember, two weeks ago, our public messaging worked, actually, in terms of making the statement, following the advice in terms of returning or you know, working from home, the exhortations to people to reduce their socialisation. That has led to a moderation, stabilisation of hospital numbers and ICUs, but we're still at too high a level in incidence levels. The same advice now is being applied to children from the public health doctors that if we can reduce socialisation overall, we could turn that curve the other way. So what about masks for school kids? The Taoiseach Michal Martin was asked if that is advice from government, just advice, or will small children be required to wear face masks? Um, and in respect of, of masks for nine-year-olds, it, this has been advised, it will be required. But it, Yeah, it has been advised and it will be required. We're not going to regulate in law in terms of legal regulations. I think we've got to work with children and, and be practical about this and children with special needs in particular. 
Right. Advised but required, although not required or regulated in law. That's uh, the Taoiseach speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Uh, confused message, I think, for some of us. Uh, clarity came by way of guidance from uh, the Department of Education who said there will be exemptions for pupils who have difficulty breathing, who are unable to remove uh, their masks without assistance, or pupils who have special needs or may feel upset or very uncomfortable wearing uh, a mask. Uh, pupils, for example, with intellectual or developmental disabilities, mental health conditions, sensory concerns or tactile sensitivity. So there's exemptions there, uh, but uh, medical certificates will be required otherwise. uh, And that's the advice uh, and they are required. And what that requirement means in the advisory from the Department of Education is that if a, a medical cert is not provided, uh, they'll be refused entry to the school. Let's talk uh, to Liam Herrick, who's uh, the executive uh, director of uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Uh, did this come as a surprise to you uh, after what uh, the Taoiseach yesterday to read this guidance uh, from uh, the Department of Ed- Education? Uh, good morning, Michael. Well, I suppose the issue of, of mass in primary school hasn't come as a surprise. It's been flagged a bit in advance. And from our perspective, and Michael, we've spoken many times in the last two years about COVID measures. The question from a human rights perspective is whether a measure being introduced is proportionate. You know, is it achieving uh, an, an objective effectively? Um, and is it disproportionate in terms of how it impacts on people's rights? When it comes to requiring people to wear masks, science seems to be very strong that it's an effective measure. And the extent which is an imposition on people's rights is marginal. It's not very significant. So generally speaking, wearing masks seems a reasonable thing to require. When you're doing it with children and younger children, there's obviously particular sensitivities around it. And it is somewhat surprising that the statement from the Department of Education talks about it being mandatory and talks about the possibility of children being excluded from school. And I think you're hearing a lot from schools and principals this morning that they feel that this has been landed on them without much lead-in or preparation mm. and that the responsibility is unfairly being vested on them. Well, the department is saying children will be refused entry to school, teachers for that matter, uh, unless they have a medical cert or the school can identify one of the exemptions that I just read out. Uh, That would seem uh, very different to what the Taoiseach was saying when he was saying that it wouldn't be regulated by law. Uh, So what's the standing uh, of this guidance from the department? Must schools refuse children and teachers if they're not wearing masks? I I think it is confusing because a lot of the language, as you say, Michael, from the teacher, talked about schools using their judgment, schools using discretion, there being a lead in time, undefined, uh, by by which this would be implemented. Now, I think, stepping back from all of this, Michael, the, the, the strong likelihood here is that the vast majority of parents and, indeed, children will hear the message, will want to do their bit. Um, I have to say my own son is in primary school, he, he's in sixth class, but all of last year in fifth, fifth class and this year in sixth class, his ch- school chose to ask kids to wear masks in the classroom, and, and they all did. So some schools have been doing this of their own initiative for a while, and children, are, are, are most kids, without you know, special circumstances, want to uh, do their part. And kids have shown a huge amount of responsibility in in all of this. The the question really is, you know, 
should we be even talking about excluding children from school at this stage? If a child turns up uh, for school in the morning without a mask, that's not necessarily that child's fault. You know, th- th- mm. that could be a parent's choice or, or maybe a, a parent for some reason failed or forgot to, to do so. Um, the ch- child shouldn't suffer. And, and if we had a situation where there was guidance and the vast majority, 80 or 90 percent of children in a class were wearing masks, well, wouldn't something be achieved by that, you know? So wh- why would well, we... Well, the, the, the school, the department says the school should have a sufficient supply in exactly that circumstance uh, where a child forgets uh, their mask. But I, I take it this advice really is uh, to children uh, who won't wear masks or parents who won't let them wear masks. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there probably is a small cohort out there. Um, I think it's a practical point. The benefits from even talking about school exclusion, I, 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 I doubt that there's very significant mm. benefits from it. The harm that could be caused that a child, through no fault of their own, could be isolated and excluded from school. And also, Michael, we need to be realistic about this. There's a very, very small number of people out there that are against any public health measures, um, that believe that masks are some type of conspiracy uh, that's not based in any science. Um, and this, if anything, probably draws attention to those people and gives them probably more attention and status mm. than maybe is, is productive or helpful. So if, if a child is uh, refused entry to school, as it's uh, phrased in uh, the guidance from the department, or a teacher is refused entry to school, uh, what does that mean? Uh, is uh, the teacher suspended from work? Uh, are they into a disciplinary process? Uh, or is it that they can return when they have a change of heart or the advice changes? Or, or what does it mean for a child's education? Can they progress through the system? Well, I mean, I, I think the situation with adults and, and, and children is quite different. You know, there, there are many workplaces where, as a health and safety matter, adults are required to wear masks. And I'm not aware that there's been any problem in schools at any level of staff um, being reluctant to wear masks. You know, I don't think there's been any issue about that. With regard to children, um, I, I, I think if there were to be a school exclusion, it would be very regrettable. Uh, and there are processes, administrative processes, appeal processes within the Department of Education that allow children to challenge that. And, and that would be a whole unnecessary headache, I think, for schools. I mean, I think when you're listening to teachers at the moment, Michael, that they've been put in a very difficult position, um, not just on this issue, with the contact tracing issue, from teachers saying repeatedly for the last three months, there is a problem in our schools, the contact tracing, the absence of it is a real problem. And what they were hearing back from government was, schools are safe, if kids are getting it, they're not getting it in school, it doesn't happen. Um, now there is an acknowledgement from government that there is a problem there and it seems the responsibility is being vested back on the schools again. So, mm. look... Yeah, I, I, uh, and a bizarre interview from the Minister for Health on television last night uh, suggesting uh, that uh, whilst they're not safe on one hand, they are safe on the other hand uh, so that you don't need uh, the air filtration uh, HEPA systems. Uh, but uh, we're going to leave it there for the moment, Liam, because I, I want to go to a school principal. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us, Liam Herrick, Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Anne-Marie Ford is uh, the principal of Skull Nave, Cullum Kill and Tully Donnell. Toher, good morning to you again, Anne-Marie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, when did this start to sink in for you uh, in terms of what's expected of you? 
Well, I suppose, uh, Michael, we were kind of aware of, um, obviously this has been an ongoing issue now, this, this pandemic, and uh, we actually recommended, you know, last year for, for some of our pupils uh, to wear masks where at all. Now, it wasn't mandatory at the time, but we felt that, you know, at, after the 8,000 cases back in January, um, that, we, you know, we would try to cut the chances of this spreading. And we found it was very, very helpful. We had no cases at all last year. Then come September, we actually had a massive outbreak. We, did, we had no recommendations for mask wearing in September. There was a very big outbreak to the extent every class in the school was affected. So, um, like, I can understand where, you know, the government is coming from in terms of the mask wearing and reducing the transmissibility of the variant because, as you, as you mentioned there earlier, every school, you know, has been affected in terms of the, the increase there in numbers as we see exponentially there over the last mm. um, number of weeks and months. And I suppose from, from our perspective in school, like, from my perspective... My 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 most important, um, uh, I suppose, uh, what I'm looking to do is is to make sure that the children stay in school. You know that that's that's what mm. we want to keep our schools, our classes open. We don't want to see half our classes at home. We don't want to see the school closed. And so, therefore, any and every measure that we can put in place in order to keep children in school for their education and for their mental health is what we would deem most important. And I think we were all expecting that children would be asked to wear and encouraged to and advised to wear masks. Uh, But I I think the surprise here is that some children may be refused entry to school uh, unless they have a medical certificate to say that they shouldn't wear one. Uh, And they're waking up to that today without any opportunity to see a doctor, let alone anything else. Absolutely, yeah. And I suppose, like, for me, it would be, there would need to be a little lead in there. We've got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we would be expecting then that from Monday that everybody would be looking and have got their head around the, the government guidelines and, and uh, you know, make provisions around that, I suppose, Michael. Mm. And what have you been hearing from parents this morning? <laughs> well, I actually haven't heard anything okay. from parents. I, 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 you know, here in Tullydon, we have a really good, you know, mm relationship with the parents and you know I, I always think in these situations it's best where everyone comes together to try to work together that there's no divisiveness we're all in the pandemic together we're all trying to operate we're all wanting the best for our children we're wanting the best for their education for their mental health and I suppose that good leadership means bringing everyone together bringing mm. everyone together where we work together and work through it rather than as you said there earlier the divisive approach where you know people going off in, in different directions that only causes extra work and extra pressure for everybody. So mm. I think where everyone can pull together, it's the best approach. Uh, and uh, an absolutely wise approach uh, at that, as long as everybody uh, does fall in line and everybody yeah. agrees. Uh, it may not be the case, of course. Uh, you're obviously not uh, anticipating any problems, though, in tower. No, I, I haven't had so far. Like re- We've had a really, really good response from the parental um community here everybody does pull together everybody tries to understand we have a flexible approach in terms of we try to understand everybody's needs we have as i've spoken to you before we have four classes here of children with a diagnosis of asd and early intervention so we we operate in terms of it's not life is not black and white michael so you have to see the gray and you'll have children there today of course with masks and you'll have children there today without masks exactly very good. Okay, Anne-Marie, thank you indeed for joining us as well on the programme this morning. Thank you so much. That's Anne-Marie Ford, who's the principal of Skullnave Cullumkill in Tully Donald Toher. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. I think it's the mammies that we really want to hear from uh, this morning, or the mammies and uh, the daddies if uh, men are taking young children to school. And if you woke up knowing that it was mandatory for your child to, to wear a mask or that they would be sent home, uh, let us know uh, either way, if you would, as always. And what you think about it uh, for that matter. But we're going to co- talk about uh, the cost of rent now because uh, the Irish Independent reported this week uh, that the Minister for Housing uh, Dara O'Brien is to bring legislation uh, through the Oireachtas in the coming weeks. Um, This will limit increases in the cost of rent to the rate of inflation or 2% or whichever is lower. Let's uh, talk about this with uh, John Mark McCarthy who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Housing Agency Threshold. Good morning as always to you John Mark and thanks uh, indeed for joining us. Uh, There's no great surprise in that part of the story uh, but it it seems as though rent increases in rent pressure zones that haven't been applied over recent years can be totted up uh, and added together and it could see rents increase uh, quite dramatically for some tenants as a result. Yeah, good morning, Michael. A pleasure to be on again. Um, yeah, I suppose the ability of the landlord to raise the rent for years when the rent hadn't been raised, um, it has been a part of previous rules, albeit capped to two years. So um, it was an issue, for example, during kind of the early stages of the pandemic when people were hit with an 8% increase due to landlord forbearance during last year. So some people... Um, you know, saw their the rent kind of, uh, I suppose, uh, pause, and then they they were subject to two times four percent, two years of four percent, all in a one But I suppose the new rules don't have a limit on how far back the landlord can go. As far as I know, we don't know the detail of that. But um, so it, there may be higher than a good bit higher than the the two percent increase, which is. Uh, in the legislation, you could have something up to about six percent. So, while most tenants will be in a well, a, a more favourable position in the sense that the, the there's an increase in the cap to two percent rather than the four percent over the last five years. But it, that will come as a shock to some tenants who think, okay, our, mm-hmm. our rents are capped at two percent, and then they're hit with some something like five point nine percent or something. So, I suppose it, it will affect a small number of tenants where a small number of landlords haven't um, increased at the, the maximum um, you know, 4% yeah. that was allowed under rent pressure zones, that will have a, a, an impact on, um, on the lower income uh, renters. I take it it could be more than 5 or 6%. Uh, I think that was an example that was used in, in the Irish Independent. But as you say, it's not known yet how far back uh, landlords can go. Uh, I think a spokesperson told the paper that rents won't be able to exceed market rent, but on occasion, people are being charged far less than the market rent. Yeah, and look, I, I, you know, I understand the context in which you know a small number of landlords have a good relationship. I mean, um, the vast majority of landlords have a good relationship with their tenants, but there's a, there's a small group of them where they haven't increased the, the the rents to the same pace, and this would be an opportunity to kind of mend their hand. Now, that's okay if you know you're a tenant and you're working in tech or you're 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 on a higher income. The issue is if you are on a lower income or a fixed income or indeed you lost your, your job or you, you were on reduced salary due to the COVID restrictions um, or other circumstances and then you know, you're know you seeing a 6% increase with, that you didn't bank on. 
um, and that you don't have the resources for. Um, and I suppose that for us is is, is the worry. Um, and also that, okay, those certain rents haven't necess- necessarily kept pace with the market level, but they might just be slightly under. And and the, the market level of rents are still very, very high. Mm-hmm. And, and some of them are still, you know, unaffordable for um, a good portion of the uh, the tenants, that, especially that we assist, um, that already report that, you know, they, they find that they're spending way over 30% of their, their income, their take-home pay or their income um, in, in rent, sometimes 40%, sometimes 50% in rent. Um, and if you take it that, you know, inflation is run, now running between 4 and 5%, part of that being the uh, the increase in energy costs, which, of course, um, will be a big chunk of household budgets for the next, um, you know, four, five, six months. Um, there's a good number of things there that um, lower-income renters have to contend with if, indeed, they, they find their rent increasing by multiples of the 2%. If, let's, let's say for, for argument, they, they see a 6% increase, mm. that's a 6% increase on what's probably still a very, very high rent. It might just be under, just slightly under the market. Yeah. But it, it's it's a big challenge. And I suppose our worry as we advise and we assist tenants and thresholds is that some will be impacted in terms of hardship. Those on the lower incomes will be impacted if they see something like 6%, 8% increase. If that happens, because I take it the likelihood is that that won't actually happen, because if the relationship is such, uh, as you mentioned earlier on, uh, that the landlord hasn't been increasing the rent uh, because they're happy uh, with the tenant and vice versa, uh, well, then the likelihood is uh, that they're not going to decide now to uh, bring in this uh, exorbitant increase. Uh, But it may be that the tenant has moved out and you're bringing in somebody that you don't know uh, and think this is uh, probably the right thing to do because that's the market rate. Yeah, I mean, I guess we hope it won't happen, but I suppose once you lock into legislation and the opportunity to increase by multiples, then that's at the landlord's discretion. So it's very much the the tenant is at the mercy of whether or not a landlord who has historically not increased to the same rate will rectify that. And... Um, while you know one can see um, why a landlord might do that, um, there is an impact for especially lower income tenants that might be going from you know a thousand euro um, a month to you know um, a thousand sixty or you know something which is kind of um, just nudging them towards a financial pressure which which is is very tough for them and their families and and perhaps some kind of arbitration might be required in those small cases a small number of cases because we do believe that this will be a small number of cases you know um, the majority of landlords mm. will have tracked the the increases according to the uh, the legislation and it won't be impacting on the the institutions because they'll have just increased them at the the stroke of midnight. It's more the small landlords, the vast majority of landlords who have just one or two properties and just a subset of those who who may want to mend their hand. Yeah, well, it's 6% of, what, 1,000, 1,200, 2,000 a month, depending on what people are paying. All right, uh, we'll leave it there for uh, the moment uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll get details of uh, this legislation uh, as it goes through the Oireachtas in uh, the coming weeks. But John Mark, thank you as always for joining us on the programme this morning. John Mark McCafferty is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Threshold. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, great to be uh, getting uh, that uh, feedback uh, from parents uh, this morning. There is uh, some confusion. Some people saying uh, that uh, they're quite happy at the idea of wearing masks in classrooms. But one caller in touch with us uh, saying they've three children, two are in national school, and uh, one of them has to wear a mask because they're in fifth class now. Our caller says they don't mind that being the case, but they just wish that they could shut the doors and the windows uh, because they're sitting in freezing cold classrooms for six hours a day. All of the windows and the fire exit open. Now the doors should be shut if the children have to wear masks. If uh, the secondary schools can do that, I don't see why it can't be done in national school. We'll stay with uh, the story now. Uh, Joe McKeown is the president of uh, the INTO, the Irish National Teachers Organisation. Very good morning to you, Joe, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Good morning. I think schools will know from the advice uh, from uh, the department uh, which children are automatically exempt. Others will need a medical certificate or else they'll be refused entry to the school. Were you surprised by that advice? Well, I think the the first thing I'd say is for everyone to realise that we got further guidance last night to say and this morning to say that schools will have a couple of days to to reflect on the advice that we're given and uh, to, to implement it. So, Children will not be refused entry today or tomorrow, uh, and indeed, I suspect, for the rest of the week, uh, if they don't wear a mask. Yeah, well, they'll need time to get a, a medical cert apart from anything else, yes. I, I think I, I think that the tone of the, the document would have caught uh, many principals and teachers by surprise, um, even though it is the very same document that was given to post-primary schools when, when wearing of masks uh, was introduced there. But obviously... Uh, the age of the children is different and the, the, the culture of primary schools is entirely different. Uh, I think what, what your listeners should know is that schools will work with parents over the next number of days. It'll be very obvious that most children uh, over the age, uh, over th- from third class up, will be able to wear masks. And I think most parents will cooperate with that. I think wearing of masks in indoor settings is the norm for uh, adults in our society now. Mm. And it's going to be the norm for some time. And it is a public health measure that we need to 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 adhere to. Um, but most most schools also will indeed know the children who have what are described as complex needs. They'll be well aware of them. And again, I think schools will not make blanket decisions there. They'll have conversations with parents about their child because you can have two autistic children, and one might find it very easy to wear a mask, might be very happy to do so, another might not. So those conversations will take place, and then you'll have parents who will have concerns themselves that maybe their child has a breathing or a medical condition uh, or the pupil it might be unable to remove face covering without assistance. Uh, and they, they might have a consultation with their, their GP and if they have a medical cert, then that will, will, will clearly give them an exemption. But we are looking at a situation where most of the people, most of the time, um, get to, um, you know, will be wearing, will be wearing masks. In As a, a trade union, have you any concerns uh, about your members' rights? Because this applies to both staff and pupils. If a member of staff just doesn't want to wear a mask, what is their position? Uh, will they be suspended or will they just be asked to stay at home? Or where do they stand? Well, well uh, staff and, and teachers have been obliged to wear masks uh, for, for, for quite some time now since schools reopened. Um, and so we've had to address that situation, and it is the very same as, as it is for the pupils. If you don't, if you don't have a specific medical reason why you can't wear a mask, um, then 
you must, uh, you know, you, you will be refused entry and you won't be able to, to, to go to work. And that's... And, and so so, so this r- refusal uh, of entry, uh, it, there's no change in terms of staff in, in this guidance? Abs- uh, absolutely okay. not. And, okay. and, and, mm. and as a trade union, just to be very clear, mm. the Irish Congress of Trade Union is very much of the view that pro-mask is pro-worker. Uh, mm. So, uh, so, so that, that, that's uh, very much the case. However, you know, I think the issue arising here is that we have young children who are not making the decisions for themselves. Um, and that, that causes a, 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 a bit of an issue. Uh, but look, I, I, I do really believe that when you look at what has happened in the last couple of weeks and when we see the explosion of COVID among those primary school children, I think the vast majority of parents will be taking the view that it makes sense that if an unvaccinated group of people are indoors for five or six hours and mask wearing is recommended as a measure to reduce the risk of transmission, that will help to keep schools open, help to keep children safe, um, they will cooperate with that um, just in the same way as they cooperate with other Yeah, I'm sure that's absolutely correct, that the vast majority of people will feel that way. Is that enough? Well, I mean, I, I think it usually is enough. Uh, I, I think that, that that there are many people too, uh, parents, in fairness to those who, who aren't comfortable about it. No, nobody wants to see mask mm. wearing, uh, either in school or in, mm. in the general society, we'd like, like it to be gone. But I think those who have concerns, I think it's important to listen to them, and it's important for schools to talk out how to to deal with um, to deal with their, their their concerns. Okay. And I think too, things will come out about, say, for example, when children are outdoors and are playing; mm. they won't be wearing the masks at that time. Um, and it's, it's about working with it and a public health measure. But your members but, will will follow this guidance and refuse oh, entry. Uh, well, uh, well, absolutely. When yeah. when, okay. when the situation is running, they will have to follow the guidance. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Joe McKeown, okay. President of the INTO, the Irish National Teachers Organisation. Now, Laura Erskine is a parenting expert and with us too. Good morning to you, Laura, and thanks as always for joining us. What do you think of all of, about all of this? I think wearing masks at this point in the pandemic, while it's, it's uh, very late in the day in terms of introducing this as a, a measure to help mitigate the, the spread of COVID, in particular the highly virulent Delta variant, um, it is welcomed in this run-up to Christmas because the last thing that any child or indeed parent wants is for their family to become sick with COVID during this important time for families. Um, but also um, the idea of, of schools closing again um, in order to keep children safe or indeed for their extracurricular activities to be halted uh, because of, of this highly um, you know, transmissible yeah. virus within this unvaccinated um, cohort of the population being the primary school children. And the masks are just one more measure to help protect them. It's just a shame that they didn't think of introducing them back in September when they made it mandatory for all secondary school students to, uh, to wear their masks. And when you look at the comparison between secondary school and primary schools, secondary school students with a lot of children there being vaccinated in that 12 to 17 group um, and also wearing their masks, their numbers of COVID incidents is far, far lower than what we're seeing in primary schools. So the masks are one more measure to help protect our children. And while it will seem uncomfortable and strange at first, for those children aged 9 to 12 to wear the masks, it is something that they will get used to. And our children are resilient. Some of them will love it. uh, It'll make them feel grown up. Uh, uh, And most people will think this is prudent. Uh, Nobody wants problems. uh, But do you think there will be problems? 
I, inevitably, there are some children who will have, um, you know, issues, special needs, you know, in terms of, of mental um, health mm. issues or even an intellectual disability or sensory. Mm. And they should be automatically exempt. Uh, the, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that has been mm. communicated to But do you think there'll be problems with parents where there's no ne- need for an exemption? Yes, I think there will be, um, because they'll get pushback from their children in these early stages and um, that they don't like wearing the masks that it makes their glasses fog up if they're if they're eyewear if they wear eyewear and um, maybe that they just find it difficult to breathe or they find it uncomfortable i think there will inevitably be some pushback but um children uh, once they see that most other children within their class are wearing the masks they won't want to be singled out they won't want to be left out and inevitably they'll be the ones who make the t- decision to wear the masks and you can get lots of fun um, and cute uh, designed masks mm. which Children. I don't think they're allowing them. <laughs> no, the, it says it in the guidance. They're not allowed. They have to be uh, plain masks as far as I can. Plain masks. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Th- that's going to be difficult, um, you know, and, and I think that it is something that um, that if the government are insisting on the type of mask that, that, uh, that a child wears to primary school, bearing in mind we want everyone to get on board with this new health measure, um, that uh, they either provide the masks or else they allow children to choose their own. So, um, you know, having a diktat that it has to be a plain mask is a little bit much, um, especially when they're only issuing guidance at a quarter past six in the evening, the night before uh, children are due to go in the next day to wear the mask. Yeah, may not contain I, may not contain any slogans, logos or images uh, that may cause upset or deemed offensive. Uh, I suppose that uh, does allow for some, but uh, that's a kind of a, a subjective statement in itself, is it not? It is, and you can understand mm. that they don't want, um, you know, it, it to become um, a, a fashion statement, mm. or indeed to offend anybody by wearing the mask with with something that is controversial. However, I cannot imagine any parent would let their child go into school with some slogans or or words mm. or images that would be deemed offensive. I suppose the government are just covering themselves there. I did have a child this morning who was scrambling to find her tie dye mask to wear in this morning, mm. <laughs> and another child who had a Man United mask mm. now that that contains a logo but you know what if, if, if that's what it takes for the child to wear it and to be comfortable wearing it I, I don't see there being a problem with that okay. and I think it's a little bit far reaching for the government to insist that no logos be included on masks Okay well a face covering or a face cloth is one thing a surgical face mask is another thing and uh, it'll be up to parents of course to decide and to choose uh, they'll get much better protection for their children if uh, they give them surgical face masks to go in as is the case with all of us uh, but uh, time will tell how all of this will pan out. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, uh, Laura Erskine, parenting expert. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, people over the age of 60 are queuing up to get vaccines in Greece. At least that seems to be the initial reaction to an announcement that it is now mandatory if you're over the age of 60 to get vaccinated or you face a substantial fine, it would seem. At 11 o'clock yesterday, there were 500 people in Greece over the age of 60 waiting on an appointment to get vaccinated. The Prime Minister uh, made the announcement at noon and by one o'clock there were 1,500 people waiting for an appointment, three times the amount of people two hours previously. Let's go to Athens and speak uh, to Mikolaj 
Tin Tinish, uh, who is a columnist with uh, the Catamarina newspaper. A very good morning to you, Miklish, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. This seems uh, a fairly draconian move uh, by your government. Uh, how has it gone down with people? How are people reacting? Good morning from Athens. Uh, it was not an easy decision to make, and uh, the, the government has been contemplating a lot uh, the Prime Minister uh, just one month ago uh, said publicly that uh, he was afraid that uh, if he, he took uh, such a step, uh, he was afraid that uh, he might create a backlash. But uh, it, it seems to be working. It's too early to say. But as you said, uh, the initial reaction is uh, very positive. Uh, you know, we had a very high fatality rate uh, because half a million people over 60 have not been vaccinated. So that's why you see in Greece, although the number of cases uh, are not higher, is not higher than uh, compared to the rest of Europe, you see a higher fatality rate. So uh, I think uh, they felt, the government felt that they should take a, a, a more bold step uh, to, to break this uh, wall of denial. Uh, we don't have an organized movement, uh, anti-vax movement in Greece. We have not seen mass demonstrations or violent clashes with the police uh, like you have seen in uh, Belgium or uh, Netherlands. But uh, still, uh, I think uh, the difficulty is that uh, uh, most of the people that uh, don't want to get vaccinated are uh, over 60. Why is that? So now, why, why is that, you uh, think? <laughs> There's a slight delay on the line. Apologies uh, for uh, the confusion that that causes. Uh, but uh, you've had an awful lot of deaths in Greece. The population is about 11 million people. So you're a little over double the population of Ireland. But I think there's been about 18,000 people who have lost their lives to COVID. That's correct. Um, it's due to our, It's a number of reasons. It's due to our demographics because, uh, you know, the Greek population is... Uh, older uh, than uh, the rest of Europe. So, uh, And also there is a, a lot of people, uh, I mean, uh, you see that uh, in other countries, uh, more, older people uh, feel, uh, you know, this fear, they know they are more vulnerable, vulnerable to this disease. So uh, they, you see that the, the vaccination rate is higher uh, in older ages. In Greece, for uh, some reasons that uh, I, I'm afraid we don't have the time to analyze, uh, you see the opposite. Older people are, uh, due to maybe religious superstitions, uh, very reluctant, and uh, they fear that uh, you know this. Uh, they are very uh, susceptible to these uh, conspiracy theories circulating in the social media. So. Uh, I, I believe that now um, the hope is that uh, we hope that uh, they're going to this mandate is going to work. It's working uh, in the last twenty hours. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit uh, about the fine. It's one hundred euro if you're over sixty and you do not get vaccinated. That's from the sixteenth of January onwards. Is it one hundred euro every month? Every month, exactly. Okay. Uh, and what would that mean to a pensioner? How much would uh, somebody on the state pension be receiving? 
the lowest pension is around 400 euro per month. So that's a lot of money. Lo- hmm. Most people get the double. Uh, the, I mean, uh, the, the mid- in the middle is about uh, 800. Most most people get 800 euros per month. Okay, but 100 euro is a, a, a lot of money if you're on 800 and particularly if you're on 400 people. So uh, it, it's a, a fairly hard approach that the government is taking with people. Uh, are people upset at all that they're being told what to do? Uh, and can you tell us, Mikolas, as well, what happens if people uh, don't pay the fine, if um, if they don't get vaccinated and they somehow manage not to pay the fine, is there another sanction? Do they face prison or anything like that? No, no, it's not. It's a, a, as we call it, a, it's like a, a tax fine, an administrative fine, not a penal fine. So um, I, I think that in the end, uh, the, the government has access to their uh, bank accounts, or their pension. So, uh, in the end of the year, if they don't uh, pay the fine, uh, they can uh, just uh, take the money from their accounts, or uh, uh, like they do if uh, if you owe money to the to the tax administration. So, uh, the reactions uh, is it's, uh, the the opposition is not being helpful. Of course, we know that. Uh, from the fringes of the political spectrum, uh, there are uh, people uh, waiting to take advantage of the of the anger or the the indignation of the people. But uh, we have to wait and see. Um, um, it's it's too early to say. Uh, I know that uh, my sources have been telling me that uh, uh, they, they were very hesitant because they didn't want to create, uh, you know. Uh, uh, breathe the ground for uh, these movements, uh, uh, anti-establishment movements that want to take advantage of the pandemic. If the problem, think, if the problem with coronavirus continues, uh, is there talk of extending this? Could this be just the first step? Now it's over sixties. Uh, next year could it be over fifties or over thirties or, or something like that. The experts say that uh, the problem is with the people uh, that uh, tend to need the hospitalization and uh, they are more vulnerable. And, uh, you know, if uh, 90% of the people who die in Greece due to COVID are over 60. 80% of the people who need care in an intensive care unit are over 60. So they believe, and they have been telling this to the government, I mean, the medical experts have been telling this to the government, that if you manage to 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 persuade more people to get vaccinated older people you don't have to to impose such a measure in other uh, uh, social uh, groups okay so, uh, if this succeeds uh, they believe that uh, we are not going to to have to expand this uh, in in uh, horizontally very good Mikolas, it's very good to talk to you. Thank you indeed for taking our our call this morning. Thank you for having me. Have a nice day. Thank you very much indeed. Mikolas Chinchinas, who's a columnist with uh, the Katamarini... Katamarini... Are you still there, Mikolas? 
I'm sorry. I, uh, me. Thank you very much. Me. Thank you very much for helping me. Thank you. Uh, in Athens, uh, very nice to talk to you. Thank you indeed. And apologies uh, for struggling uh, to get my tongue around that. Probably wasn't the hardest of things to say, uh, but just uh, sitting here trying to read it off my page uh, this morning, I couldn't do it. My apologies uh, to Miklish and my thanks to Miklish. Uh, and thank you to everybody who has been in touch with us so far as well. This morning, Mairead and Drahada has been in touch. Mairead says, who is going to have to make the decision to send a child home from school because they're not wearing a mask? It won't be the child's fault if their parent is taking a stance over this. And Mairead believes that some parents will do that. Thanks, uh, Mairead. Uh, Karen in Dundalk says, my husband is a school bus driver and the children are supposed to be wearing masks on the bus, but the amount of parents who complain about it is unreal. Some send them without masks to make a point. And only for my husband has his own supply, he would have to refuse the children. It'll be interesting to see how this works in the schools. Very interesting, Karen, uh, to hear that. Uh, thank you for sharing it with us. Darren in Navin uh, in touch with us today. And Darren says, I think it's probably a good move to have children wearing masks in school, but I don't understand why it's not all ages. Why is it only from nine up? Also listening to the school principal on the programme this morning, that's Adbury Ford in Toher. Uh, he says it seems to be that not a, enough time has been given to enable parents whose children might be exempt to get a, a note from uh, their GP. There has to be some leeway given. It sounds from uh, the trade union, the INTO, that there will be some time given uh, and that that will be the position they'll probably take this week. Uh, Joanne says uh, they didn't give parents much time to get exemption letters from their doctors uh, and hopefully there'll be a bit of flexibility in that respect. Joanne, uh, one call, uh, another call for the moment uh, from Anne in Drogheda and she says if the GPs haven't enough to be doing it's hard enough to get an appointment if you're sick and now you're going to have parents taking up time looking for exemption letters for their kids. Surely schools are already aware of children's medical conditions. Thank you, Anne. That's a, another valid point. Uh, I'm not sure if it can be done just over the phone because uh, the GP would be aware of uh, your child's uh, medical uh, record and their situation and should be able to give a letter. But I, I would imagine that would be the first thing to do is to ring the GP and ask if that's possible rather than asking for an appointment. OK, thank you to everybody who's been in touch with us today so far. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some uh, 242 women have uh, died violently in this country between 1996 and 2020. They're the femicide figures uh, that are compiled by uh, Women's Aid uh, and uh, are only the very uh, most dramatic part of a story that... uh, goes across so many households in this country. Uh, so what can be done about gender-based violence uh, and what can be done to improve policy and services in the area of uh, gender-based abuse? Well, knowledge is a great thing and uh, a number of groups are calling on uh, uh, the calling for the elimination beg your pardon, I'm sorry, I'm hearing things in my headphones, are calling for the elimination of gender-based abuse 
uh, to save lives uh, by establishing a national research and knowledge hub. Uh, let's hear a little bit more about this now. We're being joined by Madeleine McAleer, who's uh, Training Research and Development Director with Haven Horizons, and uh, Dr. Lisa O'Rourke Scott, Principal Investigator with the Edge Research Group. Good morning to both of you, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you held uh, an online webinar yesterday, which was attended uh, by Simon Harris, uh, the Minister for um, further education yesterday and indeed quite a, a number of experts uh, for that matter, Madeline. Tell us a, a little bit more about what you're proposing and how it would feed in to uh, shaping policy and improving services. Well, we would be calling for the establishment of a research and knowledge hub so that we can connect the real lived experience of people who are victims of domestic abuse and coercive control so that can connect in with research being done in our higher institutes so that we can then use that evidence, that real evidence, to inform new policies, new legislation and, that, and ensure that the services actually meet the needs of the people that they're set up to address. Um, so to bring all that together, to ensure that you've got increased knowledge that can actually inform new policy and legislation. Academia and the real lived experience can't continue to be in two separate silos as such. We must integrate them and bring them together and bring all of the people who are working in services, the voices of the victims and the knowledge created and the evidence base created in academia to change and eliminate gender-based abuse in Irish society. And I'm sure every story is different, uh, but is it that you're trying to establish patterns and to try and uh, determine when red flags should be raised? Yes, that, but also, um, for example, if research is done, which it has been, to show that control, coercive control, is more indicative of serious harm or likely homicide than actual incidents of physical violence. If, if that research is there, done all around the world um, by, by Jane Mockton Smith in the UK, who's a criminologist and also is a homicide reviewer, and um, Evan Stark, who's written the book on coercive control, um, if, if that evidence is there, then that has to be very quickly um, moved into policy and legislation to ensure that when as it has been done now, we have a new law on coercive control since 2019. Mm. But this research and this knowledge has been around since the late 80s. Um, but it hasn't been brought to the fore. So that gap between that knowledge and our new law only coming into effect in 2019, in that time, numerous women have suffered serious injury. There have been um, numerous uh, children um, injured and living lives of trauma and as you know the the Mm. femicide figures since 1996 uh, from the Women's Aid Femicide Report uh, those are the real world effects of not closing the gap between research and 
policy and legislation. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's been a, a number of uh, convictions, uh, despite uh, the sceptics, uh, because uh, it can be quite subtle, can't it? And uh, sometimes uh, we're talking about word against word. Uh, but uh, coercive uh, control, in many ways, uh, describes domestic abuse because it's always about power, isn't it? And uh, a struggle for power and uh, for somebody to take control over somebody else, uh, regardless of uh, what form the abuse takes. Yes, and the number of different ways that that control can actually play out in people's lives. As you say, all those subtle ways, you know, of emotional abuse, isolating victims, intimidating minimizing the denying and blaming the victim, you know, and that can all be held in place by threats and fear and, you know, financial abuse. So all of those things. So um, I think that, you know, when people talk about it, say when Dr. Ellen Pence uh, from Duluth talked about it, when she listened to hundreds of women and put together all of those tactics that are used, I mean, she put power and control at the centre of what was happening. And um, she said another thing that she realised was that, uh, you know, coercive control doesn't happen on a Monday at 11 o'clock and then on a Friday night for a couple of hours. It is part of controlling someone's whole lived existence to reduce their their ability to make decisions, their their space for action, their choices, um, to really just use that that power to prevent someone else um, from living the life that they want to live. Okay. Uh, if uh, a hub of uh, this sort was established, uh, Dr Lisa O'Rourke-Scott, tell me how it uh, would be used by policymakers and service uh, providers uh, uh, as you would envisage it, uh, because uh, there's various uh, stages, I suppose, uh, where problems can be identified and there's many forms of uh, abuse, uh, as Madeline was saying there, but it, it could be that somebody is controlling somebody else's phone or their bank account or what they where or who it is that they see or they're saying things that would impact on their self-esteem. When should there be intervention? Oh, that, that's a very specific question. I suppose more generally in terms of, the, if I come to the first bit first, sure. more generally in terms of the research and knowledge hub, we at Tooth really feel that, you know, while academics can sometimes do pieces of inform- or, of research, like, you know, the kinds of control and how they happen in terms of use of resources, use of phones and that kind of thing. Unless these are communicated effectively, not only to the policymakers and the lawmakers, but also to the people on the front line who are actually working to engage those uh, issues, then they're, they're, you know, or to implement the policy, then they're not going to understand because one of the things that supports domestic abuse and coercive control is a set of beliefs that aren't necessarily true about victims and about perpetrators. So there is a tendency in the kinds of things we say and do to exonerate perpetrators, to say, well, you know, she wound him up or whatever, and to blame victims, why don't they leave and those kind of things. So I think one of our major objectives in TUS was to work closely with an on-the-ground organisation that are actually at the front line of service provision and education and to make sure that we can bring together as many of our researchers with 
the people who are working at the front line. So we are launching a new website which will allow um, a means of people to network together and start new projects, but also to do things like lobbying and public policy. But the other thing that we want to do is provide education, and we've already developed, myself and Madeline together, a um, a programme of education, which Madeline is delivering, which helps people like guards, like frontline service mm. providers, like social workers and so on, to actually identify and respond to domestic abuse and coercive control. So I suppose that's where we get into the nitty gritty of what you were asking me about mm. in your last question, that, you know, there needs to be frontline training. There needs to be lobbying for policy. It needs to be, to use a very cheesy cliche, joined up because at the moment people are working in different areas and doing wonderful work. But what we'd like to do is bring it all together in a knowledge hub. Is that possible? I hope so. That's what we're trying to do. Um, Mm. Ireland is quite small. So actually this kind of project beginning in Ireland... um, is very useful because we kind of, I wouldn't say we all know each other, but we certainly have a very intimate population. So we're starting with Ireland. In the new Mm. year, we're going to be bringing in researchers from the UK, from across the European Union, and indeed further afield. So we hope that that will happen. And given all that has happened with COVID, there's obviously been some very negative effects of that. Mm. But one of the positives is we've all had a big old upskill. So we're all much more comfortable, or whether we like it or not. Maybe so, we, but uh, I mean, if you take policing uh, in uh, this area, for example, uh, I, I think mm-hmm. uh, the response from uh, the guards uh, going back, let's say, 10 years uh, was pretty deplorable and a lot of these calls weren't taken seriously and there was yeah. a lot of criticism about that. That has uh, improved uh, an awful lot under Commissioner Drew Harris. Uh, but at the same time then, this week, we're hearing about 9-9 calls that went unanswered uh, and nobody knows uh, what happened to people who were calling because they were in a situation uh, where it was quite possibly violent but God knows. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, is, that is really, really problematic. We have actually applied for some funding ourselves to look at that very thing because we need to be able to ascertain well, what went on there but it is very difficult because uh, various privacy issues sometimes preclude looking at it but we're certainly, it's something we really really want to address as part of our work in the Knowledge Hub. Okay, uh, maybe I can conclude by asking you both uh, about uh, the different people involved in uh, domestic uh, abuse and uh, the different approaches uh, we take uh, to those who are abused uh, and the support that uh, we try to give to those but what about the abusers? Uh, do we do anything to try uh, uh, and educate or prevent uh, abuse or is it a question of looking at what people have done after the event and then trying to punish them for it? Or is there something that should be done differently in that respect? Uh, that's, that's a great question and it's something we talked about a little bit at our seminar. So that kind of intervention can be targeted at various levels. So I might talk about the kind of structural and social level, which is about changing people's minds about what isn't isn't acceptable behaviour. So a lot of it can be done in terms of education. And so, for example, there is research which suggests that what we call domestic abuse myths 
are present in the population at large. A lot of people believe the kinds of things I was talking about earlier on. And a good way to address that is to um, have public education change people's mm. minds on that kind of thing. Because those, those obviously, frontline service providers of all kinds are members of society. So they're inclined to believe the things that everybody else believes. Okay. So we really need to address that issue. But I might hand over to Madeline yeah. for the other bit. Yeah, Madeline, yeah. Uh, when it comes uh, to education, I think a lot of young people, for example, are being educated on their phone uh, and uh, there's a lot of concern about what they're watching on their phone and that sort of thing. Uh, should there be something done proactively to uh, help people understand uh, how we should have respect for each other? Yes. And, I mean, you're talking basically about Um, programs around healthy and unhealthy relationships and there is a lot of work going on in that area and a lot of proposals some coming from um, higher you know third level institutes like uh, NUIGs two of the speakers at our webinar yesterday were from the active consent program and in a couple of years by connecting in with the NGOs and the uh, rape crisis centres they have put together a joint project that is now running into its sixth year and it has um, had some pretty amazing outcomes in that a couple of years ago consent wasn't mentioned uh, in a third level and now active consent programs that they're running through exactly what you're talking about, videos, drama, all of those. Uh, so our centre was about engaged research which would mean engaging with the people who experience the issue and other stakeholders and then research translation. That is, how do you translate the findings of academic research into something that has a real-world impact by the people affected by the issue? So this is what the Active Consent Programme has done by connecting in with the drama section in NUIG. And so we had a lot of very interesting uh, information from them. And to go back to what you were talking about then, about perpetrators, I mean, there are two things have to be done. Uh, Not all perpetrators are the same, but there has to be accountability for perpetrators. And you were talking about the change in how the guard, they are approaching Mm. accountability of perpetrators and the new law of coercive control, which people thought possibly wouldn't uh, be able to be enforced. But in fact, uh, what what all of the guard are saying is that it allows them to move away from this incident-based focus of a physically violent assault to this coercive control that people are using against their partners and so with coercive control they can look at the pattern the nature the severity and they can go back into the history and look at all those areas that you mentioned and that i mentioned that make up coercive control so there there are a number of programs for perpetrators running uh, around the country running with move using a program from the uk called respect and um, that's where we come to that not all perpetrators are the same and that they, they do one-to-one work because mm. some perpetrators are not suitable for group programs and some perpetrators are. The ones that are not suitable for the group programs are much more dangerous, much more high risk to their partners. And the first uh, case that went through the courts here for coercive control, um, the perpetrator was given a sentence of 10.5 years. So that's 10 and a half years. That, that has never happened before in a case of domestic abuse because mm. it wasn't its own crime. It had to be assault or aggravated assault, and those cases usually didn't make it through to the court. 
And one other program, you're talking about the whole justice system and accountability. There is programs um, in the US um, called Blueprints for Safety that looks at an interagency systems analysis of what's working and what's not working and using a safety and accountability audit system. Okay. And um, you were also asking about will uh, a research and knowledge hub work? And, um, you know, I was explaining about making sure the research was engaged and gets translated. There are a number of these uh, centres, uh, you know, around the world. Mm. There's quite a few of them in the UK. They're in Europe. They're in US. They're in Australia. One of our speakers was from Australia yesterday, and she works in exactly that type of hub with 70 other researchers. And they connect in with the frontline services and the people the survivors, I mean, that was her key point, that you have to get the lived experience brought right into Research must Mm. be designed with the people who experience it and delivered, you know, the design and delivery must mm-hmm. must be in partnership with the people who are experiencing the issue that you're researching. Okay. So mm-hmm. Okay. I'm sorry. We have uh, we've actually gone over time. We did uh, some crosswires uh, at the beginning of our, our conversation. Apologies uh, to both of you for that, mm-hmm. but it was uh, very good to talk to both of you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us thank on the program. Thank this morning. you very, very much. Indeed. Okay. Bye. Madeline McAleer, uh, training research and development uh, director with Haven Horizons, and uh, Dr. Lisa O'Rourke Scott, who's uh, the principal principal investigator with the Edge research group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you may be wondering when you're going to get your booster, if you're going to get your booster, and can you get it uh, before Christmas? Uh, but there will be people, as you know, who'll be waiting until 2023 before they get their first COVID-19 vaccination. They may be doctors or nurses. They may be elderly people. They may be people with underlying diseases. They may be all of the above uh, because 95% of people in some of the developed countries in the world have not been vaccinated as yet. Uh, let's talk uh, to Peter Power, who's uh, the Executive uh, Director of UNICEF. And a very good morning to you, Peter, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. UNICEF uh, is part of the COVAX facility, as it's known, uh, and the objective is to deliver three billion vaccines to some of the most vulnerable people in the world. Yes, good morning, Michael. Uh, Yes, that is uh, our aim and our ambition. It's a hugely uh, ambitious project that we're engaged in at the moment, uh, but one for which, um, if I can say, one for which I think we are uniquely qualified because UNICEF already uh, vaccinates 2 billion, over 2 billion children every year through our global vaccine supply chain. So what we're doing this year, working with the COVAX facility, is to double our capacity to deliver over 2 billion vaccines over the next uh, 12 months. And we are well on the way. The good news is, uh, Michael, that um, just as of yesterday, we've delivered 557 million vaccines. That'll be like the equivalent of 111, 110 Ireland's, Mm -hmm. so to speak, just to give you a comparison. And uh, so that has been fantastic work over the last number of months. And that is accelerating and increasing rapidly all of the time. It's and we, mad, isn't it? 100, 110 Ireland's and it's really only the tip of the iceberg, but we live in a big world and there's a lot of people out there, obviously. Absolutely. There's yeah. 7 mm. billion people in the mm. world. So uh, we're, we're accelerating it really rapidly. We hope to get to 800 million by the end of the year uh, and to 3 billion by the end of next year. So it's a huge, huge undertaking. There's a, a very 
complex, I think we've discussed before, a very complex uh, supply chain all the way from uh, factories through aircraft, ships and warehousing and regional distribution and then very local distribution to some very, very remote areas. So it's a, a very complex process, yeah. but we've been doing it for 70 years and we're, uh, we're really excited to be part of what is a, a really global and historic initiative, really. And it's really important, I think it's true to say, for somebody in Kells, let's say, uh, listening to us uh, this morning, uh, that everybody in Zimbabwe gets vaccinated. Uh, and I mean, important for the people in Kells. Uh, we were listening to a South African doctor on uh, the programme yesterday tell us about uh, the Omicron variant. Uh, we don't know if it, it uh, first established itself there or if it was in Holland or where uh, it uh, first came about, but it was first discovered in the southern region of Africa. And this doctor was saying that in South Africa, they've a lot of people people who are HIV positive, who aren't vaccinated against COVID. And because they're immunocompromised, the vaccine is fighting against their body and their body is fighting against the vaccine and so on. And as a result of that, they end up with COVID for a very long period of time, in some cases as long as 11 months. And the upshot of all of that is that the virus starts to mutate and then you end up with these variants. You're absolutely correct, Michael. Uh, scientists uh, appear to agree on uh, this has been the more likely cause of this particular variant because there were so many uh, mutations uh, in this particular virus. And it does suggest that it had uh, longevity inside uh, one individual and probably somebody who was immunocompromised and that's obviously difficult for the, the person involved. I know from a lot of work uh, that um, uh, I and UNICEF have done in Africa for many years that there are an enormous amount of immunocompromised uh, people and a lot of them uh, are HIV uh, compromised and therefore that is uh, very much a likely cause of this and it does, mm. it's really a, a stark reminder, as you said yourself, that uh, this uh, this this pandemic, this terrible pandemic, which has visited us and the entire world, it won't be over until it's over for everybody. And while some countries seem literally a world away, um, the fact is, unless we do vaccinate everybody, this will just come back to bite us again and again. And we, you know. Mm. And that's it. If you're in Kells or Arday or in Navan or where it, uh, wherever you are this morning and you're fully vaccinated against the virus, you're fully vaccinated against that virus. It's if a variant comes in that you may not be vaccinated. And I think that's the long term fear with coronavirus. So, so should we be vaccinating people here or should we be holding off and uh, sending vaccines uh, to places where people haven't been vaccinated at all? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Michael. And uh, the good news is that we can do both. Uh, just back to your question in relation to waning immunity, the, uh, I noticed that the chief executive of Moderna vaccines uh, on, on Bloomberg yesterday suggested that because of the amount of mutations on this particular uh, virus, that it is likely, that's all they can say at this stage, it's likely that uh, the vaccines that have been developed to date will be less effective against this particular variant of the virus if if this variant becomes prevalent like the delta variants mm. variant so there's a lot of uh, a lot of ifs and uh, whys at this stage uh, yet to be figured out okay. but to your question uh, the the fact is that there is an enormous amount of vaccines in the world at the moment and there's an enormous amount of of 
uh, capacity to to manufacture vaccines at the world. Thankfully, India, which had to shut down the export of vaccines uh, from about April when the crisis hit there, the Delta variant uh, crisis started there and, and developed in India. Uh, thankfully, uh, India has come back on stream now uh, through various manufacturers, including the Serum Institute, where UNICEF sources a huge amount of our vaccines, not just COVID vaccines, but vaccines for children. That has thankfully come on stream, and India is the biggest manufacturer of vaccines in the world. So as I said, the delivery of vaccines is really accelerating mm. at the moment, and many, many countries and many rich countries, it, it, it should be said, uh, have more vaccines in storage than they need yeah. to supply their populations at the moment. And, and there's a lot of controversy at the moment about trips and intellectual properties and patents and uh, waiving uh, yes. those intellectual property rights and, and so on. Um, right. We're going to have to wrap up, but people uh, can yes. uh, make politicians know what they feel about that, but they can also make donations themselves and get a vaccine, give a vaccine. It has been the message from UNICEF since the beginning of this pandemic. Yes, and it's uh, it's been hugely successful. As you know, Michael, yeah. many of your listeners I know have supported UNICEF in, in this effort. And the one thing that's come clear to me, you know, I see, see a lot of the people writing in and everything, and it's very clear to me that the Irish public, they get this, they understand this. And yes, there's a huge, huge uh, understandable uh, feel a need for people to get vaccinated. And that's absolutely understandable. Mm. But people do really understand that we need to uh, work and help other countries to get vaccinated as well mm. or we will we'll be in this problem uh, for a long People can do that by making a, a donation to the UNICEF fund. Peter, we leave yeah. it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Peter Power is uh, the Executive uh, Director of UNICEF Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. The doll was told uh, this morning uh, that it's not possible at this stage uh, to say when Tara Mines will be operational again. Uh, the Geoscience Regulation Office office was on site uh, this week. It's engaging with management uh, about uh, the regulator with and I beg your pardon, it's engaging uh, uh, between the regulators and uh, the Beloyden group is ongoing. Let's uh, talk uh, to John Regan, SIP2 sector organiser who represents workers in Tara Mines. Good morning to you, John. Uh, what's, Good morning, the situ- Michael. what's the situation there? Well, the situation uh, is what I'm, uh, again, I'm going by information from our representatives on the ground and uh, management I've spoken to this morning. And uh, progress has been made. Obviously, the new drill rig that has come in there to plug the hole uh, is um, fully in operation now at this stage and it's expected to uh, be that way for about two days so it's going to be um, you know uh, a couple of more days before they know whether they can uh, you know fully plug this um, stream that's flowing into the mine Uh, but there is a lot of confidence that it will the rig that is there at the moment I think uh, some uh, people will know that it is from the North Sea. Uh, they're very equipped for similar sort of circumstances and even bigger problems than what we have in Tara. Uh, and uh, confidence is high that this will get plugged in the next couple of days. It's not linked to the concerns that some local people have had about their wells running dry? No, it's not at all linked to that. What I can gather anyway is it's a stream uh, it's it's something that was obviously uh, wasn't detected, and uh, it's there now, and it's it's flowing, uh, you know, for the last week uh, constantly. So it isn't uh, it isn't wells, 
but again, obviously, if people have difficulty with wells, they'll need to get in touch with the relevant people to, uh, you know, make sure that, that that gets addressed. How much water is there in the mine, or are you able to uh, give us some sort of picture of what's going on? Well, what I can gather is, uh, water-wise, volume-wise, it's very, very strong. They've never, like for 40 years, the mine has, has dealt with water coming in, and they're, uh, you know, very equipped and able to block water uh, where they have to and control it. There is pump men permanently engaged pumping water, um, you know, 365 days of the year, 24 hours every day. They, that's their role. They, they've done that for the last 40 years. So water is, is a common feature in the mining industry. But this one is something that has obviously uh, needs greater attention. Um, my understanding is they dropped a camera into the hole yesterday and it's somewhere over 900 metres uh, in depth. So that's a huge hole to have to try and plug. And when they plug it, they have to grout it and the special grouting that's required uh, to make sure that it gets sealed up. So all of that is the process that skilled workers that have been brought into the mine, uh, along with the existing skilled workforce, uh, are going to be tackling that for the next two days. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible stuff, yeah. 900 metres deep. 900 metres of a, of a, of a of plug is, is required, yeah. Wow, it's it really huge. is incredible. Okay, uh, but, but they're, they're, they, are, they are confident they'll do it, though. You know, they're confident... Yeah. And look, the government have been very, very uh, supportive. And again, we would be asking them to make sure that that uh, confidence and support financially as well, because there's a huge finance uh, on, on all of this now as well. Uh, and and we, we certainly hope that the government won't be found wanting because Tara has 40 years of paying revenue and, and workers paying you know, bringing money into the community. So it's, it's uh, and there's another 40 years there. This is a hugely positive uh, thing if we can get this mine, this whole block, uh, 40 years more of employment. Okay, huge, thanks, John. Thank you for joining us as always. John Regan, SIP2 Sector Organiser. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.